the minute she heard the uh, theme song, she started bobbing her head, patting her foot, and swaying in this chair. <laughs> uh, I was I was just saying to somebody the other day that um, we are out of that era, long past that era, where TV shows had great theme songs. I mean, you hear music and you know the show. You hear this and you know it's Night Court. Well, you hear the theme from Sanford and Son or the Jeffersons or... Uh, I can do this all day long, right? Uh, TV shows just don't have great theme songs like they used to. So, Marsha Warfield, when you hear the theme song from Night Court all these years later, you think you think you feel what? I feel um, I'm waiting for the Easy Wider <laughs> side to go by. Um, <laughs> and you know, when I first heard it, I wasn't on the show. I was mm-hmm. doing stand up, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, uh, I didn't get to see the show that often. Mm-hmm. I was always on stage. Mm-hmm. So uh, hearing the song, it was like that show that Paula Kelly was on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that's the theme song. Take take me back all those years ago to how you got on Night Court. And I'm asking that because back then, um, there weren't a lot of sisters who were holding it down on network shows. And right. there you were on Night Court. Um, so take me back to that era, uh, that bygone era, how you got on that show. Well, I got on that show, you know, because that's a multi-part question. Okay. Yeah, but, well, you, we, got, we got an hour. Okay. And I want answers to all my parts. <laughs> okay. So go for it. So um, back then, there wasn't a a black television industry Mm -hmm. like there is now there was no black Uh, hollywood right there was no uh nothing like that so if you wanted to be on tv you were pretty much going to be on a white show Mm -hmm. and i was looking at clips uh from my past and i'm like oh i was the black girl on a lot of shows (laughs) 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 so when night court came along you know they had uh, an entirely, almost entirely different cast. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Paula Kelly was there, and uh, Selma Diamond was the bailiff. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Selma Diamond passed away yeah. in the uh, at the end of the second season. It was really a uh, one and a half seasons. Mm-hmm. It was a half season pickup, and then uh, one full season. So she was replaced by Flo Hallop, mm-hmm. who I had done a pal- pilot with the year before, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Flo passed away, mm-hmm. like over hiatus. Yeah. So I get this call, and they say, well, you heard about the bailiffs on Night Court? And I'm like, yeah, vaguely, you know. Yeah. Um, and they said, well, they want you to come in and interview. And I was like, I don't want to. Because I started in this business as a stand-up because mm-hmm. I wanted to do stand-up. Mm-hmm. And acting was a whole different thing. I had only done a little bit of that. And so I'm like, I keep going on these auditions, and it's the same eight black women for all of these auditions. And when we don't get it, then they come in and bring in Gladys Knight or something, mm-hmm. and she gets it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, okay. So mm-hmm. I'm on my way to Seattle to do a gig. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, they said, well, before you get on the plane. So I was really kind of peeved. So I had a sweat, I, I had a pack of cigarettes I smoked back then, and mm-hmm. I had a wallet, and I walked in with my sneakers and everything. And uh, the producer, Ryan Wiggy, we called him Ryan, he was from Chicago too, right. and he had a fire going in the fireplace and the air conditioning on. It was summertime, and it was hot. And so I'm like, why you got the fireplace? He said, because I like it, and I can. <laughs> and so <laughs> I said, okay. And we sat down, and he started talking about Chicago, and yeah. he knew who I was. Yeah. And I was, uh, okay. 
And he said, we don't know what we're going to do. Uh, we've uh, lost our last two bailiffs, and we don't know if we're going to have a recurring bailiff right. to work opposite Bull or or if we're going to uh, uh, up, come up with a permanent one. I said, fine. He said, well, I'll give you a call. We'll let you know what's going on. And I said, Okay, bye. Yeah. We had sat and smoked. He saw my cigarettes. He mm-hmm. said, give me one of the cigarettes. So we just sat and smoked and kikied. And um, I left, got on a plane, went to Seattle, got off the plane. They picked me up and said, call your agent. You got it. Yeah. So I had gotten booked for one episode, Yeah. Uh, the, the first episode of the fourth season. And uh, I, that was it. Yeah. So I didn't do the second the second episode. Mm-hmm. I got picked up during the second episode uh, when they were shooting the second episode. So then I panicked. Yeah. Well, I had panicked before because I had done the prior show, mm-hmm. which was stressful, mm-hmm. and uh, a few other things, but not a whole lot of, of acting. So I said, I got to take an acting class. I got to do something. I got to learn how to do this. Yeah. I don't know anything. So my agent said they got a perfect class. It's called acting for the camera. You'll go in and they'll, you know, we'll work that. Two weeks is all I had. Yeah. I go in. They tell me to get a book uh, and come back the next week. So I buy the book. I open it up. It said, uh, the preface said that the secret to acting is to keep it simple. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. The secret to acting is to keep it simple. I want to hear the rest of this story. You heard her say it was a multi-part question, <laughs> and I wanted the answers to all my parts, and that's exactly what she's doing. Okay. I, ain't, I ain't mad at her. So the secret to acting is to keep it simple. I'll, we'll, we'll let her pick up on the story when we come forward. But, uh, Miles, give me some more of that night court music in just a second here. Um, but I, I've got questions already. I mean, this, this, is why, this is why you – I don't often ask multi-part questions, but when you do, you get a lot of answer. And now I know where I'm going the rest of the hour because she's already told us – that the bailiff died not once but twice. Are you really telling me you want me to audition for a job? <laughs> <laughs> well, the persons who've had it twice have died? I won't talk about that. You heard her just casually mention, I've been on the prior show. That prior show would be Richard Pryor, the GOAT. We're going to talk about Marshall on the prior show. Um, you heard her say that I was smoking back then. Back then talk about that you see this is what it means when you listen charitably when you listen generously the guest always tells you where to go and i know where i'm going the rest of the hour with marshall warfield you're listening to tavis smiley hope agency dignity this is tavis smiley Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Marshall Warfield right now. I'm delighted to have the legendary, the iconic, uh, busy comedian Marshall Warfield join us live in studio. Um, you know her from years ago when I first fell in love with her. I mean, she played Roz on Night Court. Well, Night Court is back, and so is Roz, which means that Marshall Warfield is busier than ever. I ain't got to her stand-up dates yet. I'll share some of those. Um, she's on the move, as always, but uh, she slowed down long enough to give me an hour to come in studio to talk to me live. And I asked her, in case you've just tuned in, a, a question a few moments ago, and she said, Tavis, Negro, that's a multi-part question. <laughs> well, she didn't say Negro part, but that's how she looked at me. Like, Negro, 
that's a multi-part question. And so she started giving me a multi-part answer. And I'm loving every minute of it because now I know where I'm going the rest of the hour. But you were just on the precipice of telling me about this acting class you were about to take because you felt like you didn't nail it when you did the first episode of Night Court. So now you say, I got to start doing I got to learn how to do this. I'm right. a stand-up. I am a stand-up. But I got to learn how to act. They tell you, buy this book. You buy the book. And the preface says, uh, the key to being a great actor is to keep it simple. Correct. Pick up Marsha Wilford. Take me on, girl. So I closed the book and never went back to the class. You don't get no simpler than that. There you go. <laughs> oh. Can I just tell you, that's why you're a great comedian. I did not see that coming. <laughs> well, I, I did not see that coming. <laughs> I never went back. And, uh, <laughs> and so when I got on the set of Night Court, you have to remember at this time, the must-see TV was was owning television not only for the night for the week forever that, uh, for those who weren't around then that's nbc yes nbc must see tv it was the cosby show uh uh, uh growing pains not growing pains i can't the michael keaton show and uh uh and Cheers, mm -hmm. the Night Court. Mm -hmm. And that was often one, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. And so I'm walking into a, a top ten show, top five show, and John Larroquette at that time had been nominated for an Emmy. He won an Emmy four years in a row. Every year. Yeah. And so many that he said, take my name out of competition. Mm -hmm. I, he, he wouldn't compete anymore. So now I'm walking in and to this environment, and the first day I'm there, uh, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And Harry called me over to the bench, mm -hmm. and he said, how you doing? I said, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, we don't either. <laughs> he said, and I said, but I'm a stand-up. He said, I'm a, I'm a street ma magician. I just watch these guys yeah. and do what they do. And so that's what we did, and, and we I learned so much from them. And from just watching how they worked, and they were very receptive to mm -hmm. me. They were not, even though they were still grieving. Yeah, uh, they were very uh, welcoming, and I learned on the fly. Yeah, did it not? Speaking of grieving, did it not scare you or spook you? Um, did not cause you any pause that you were being asked to come and audition for a role that two people had died in. Well. This might not sound really good. Keep it real. But at the time when people would ask me about that, I said, you know, I'd have killed a couple more white women to get this job. <laughs> <laughs> so. but see, this, this is what... <laughs> this, <laughs> This is what I love about comedy, man. I, I'm thinking now of my friend Joan Rivers. Yeah. When she'd always say, too soon. Too soon, too soon. I used to laugh. I love when Joan did that. Too soon, too soon. Because I don't care what it is, even if it's death, what comedians do is find some humor in it. They find a way to make you laugh, even if the subject is death. Yeah. Well, I was I was upset and grieving over Flo because I had met her and worked with her. Mm -hmm. And she was so nice. And she was, you know, Flo had been in show business as an actress since the 30s or, mm -hmm. and uh, came up as a child actor and stuff. And so uh, I had learned a lot from her. Yeah. And uh, but 
the the comedian in me said, no, you know, <laughs> you do what you have to to get what I, you I need. would have killed a few more people. Okay. <laughs> hilarious, hilarious. Uh, You've already addressed this. Let me just come back and make sure I heard you correctly. So here you are, this black woman, and there aren't a whole lot of y'all, as I said, at that moment holding down on, on, on major network TV shows. And I thought I heard you say they always treated you nicely. You don't have any horror stories about being a black woman and being walked on and maltreated and mistreated and dissed and dogged out you ain't got none of that for me <laughs> well no not really i mean i have a lot of uh no i ain't doing that yeah uh kind of yeah. stories where they would give me scripts and and you know this is still the era uh that that uh robert townsend Mm-hmm. Was talking about in Hollywood, Hollywood Shuffle, Shuffle, great movie, where great they movie. would ask you, you know, could you do it a little blacker? <laughs> and we all were like, you know, you knew it was coming, yeah. And you just say, no, I don't know what you mean, yeah. And so then they would go, you know, like this, yeah, and do it a little blacker. <laughs> It was the most that's, bizarre that, thing. That's got to be the funny part right there. That's Wa- it. Watch it. Making, I mean, I, I would do it. I would have done it just for the last to make this white person show me what how they mean, black. how to be black. Exactly. It was straight up step and fetch it. <laughs> yeah. Once removed. Yeah. Minstrelsy. I yeah. mean, they, they, it was terrible. So I just didn't take those roles. And I decided yeah. uh, very early when I first started going on auditions. Uh, given the state. This was 1976, mm-hmm. 74. Mm-hmm. I started in 74. From 74 uh, on, and I decided that I would never, as a black woman, play a maid yeah. or a whore. Yeah. Because those were the roles mm-hmm. they gave to black women. Mm-hmm. And I am uh, proud to say throughout my career, I have never played a yeah. maid or a whore. Yeah. And so maybe... I don't know, but maybe that's why I was never treated like a yeah, maid no, or a, a whore. whore. No, I <laughs> so I would. It, be, it ain't what they call you; it's what you answer to. You know, so they say. I got yeah. lucky. I got lucky yeah. to be around well, that ain't, people. Who that ain't lucky. I want to correct you. I, I correct you respectfully. That ain't luck. <laughs> that is self determination. That's called integrity. That's not luck. You decided what you were gonna do, what you weren't gonna do. I said somebody the other day. I've been fortunate in my career to be friends with a lot of people, including Marshall Warfield. And if I've had many, so many conversations with Denzel D and I discuss this all the time. Mr. Poitier was a dear friend of mine. We had lunch together every other Tuesday for twenty-seven years. Wow! And you talk about sitting at his feet for all right. those years. What I've learned from watching Mr. Poitier and talking to him and hanging out with D all these years um, is that both of them will tell you if they're here right now that their careers have been defined not by the roles that they took, but by the roles they turned down. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to be willing to be hungry. That's you know, exactly you got to right. be willing to... Yeah. Uh, uh, you got to know what it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to just do jokes and mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, take anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't of that school of thought that you have to kiss butt to mm-hmm. kick butt i go. was you know not a go along to, i'm not going along to get along with nothing nobody yeah and yeah. no so I I um i turned down a lot of things that turned out to be very lucrative and mm-hmm. and uh i have no regrets there you go that's what i want to hear no regrets no regrets i'm still laughing at the, at the producer of the show you walked in he was burning had to had the heat on <laughs> 
<laughs> you ask me why, he said, because I, I like it and I can. I can. That reminds me, of, that, that's that's so Hollywood. That reminds me of Steve Bochco, the great TV producer, speaking of NBC. I worked with him, I yeah, believe. He had a lot of hits. Um, Bochco uh, once said to me, Tavis, in this town, uh, here's your goal. I was just getting started. I said, what's the goal, Mr. Bochco? He said, the goal is to get to a point where you either have FU money or an FU attitude. Yeah. And in my case, he said, I have both. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, Mr. Bochco. Uh, but that that's that attitude, right? Right. I'm doing it because I can. Well, and, I, and I like it. Nobody yeah. asked us to do this. Yeah. This is something we decided to do, and there are no blueprints. Yeah. We figured it out step by step. You know, without any guidance, knowledge, nothing. And so it has to go how you say it go because you only can be successful doing you. You can't be successful doing somebody else. It just ain't never going to work. You got to be authentic. You got to be authentic with it. Um, All right. So now I'm going to start picking apart some of these things you just slid right on by (laughs) because your career has been so full and so rich. You just like making references that ain't nobody picking up on but me when I'm paying attention to you, Marshall Warfield. So that prior show that you just casually referenced <laughs> would be the show starring one Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. The GOAT. Yes. I was just watching an episode of that a couple of weeks ago. The episode was the one he played the president of the United, the first black president. Right. In the press conference. Correct. And that thing was hilarious all these years later. Made even more funny by the fact that now they, we, we've had a black president. Right. But Pryor was out there doing this skit and doing this bit about it, which was just so funny to me. What was it like? Being in Richard's orbit, we'll talk about Paul Mooney in a minute. What's it like being in that orbit? But being a part of that show, which is which is just a, a jewel in the Richard Pryor story. Well, you can't really tell that story without without mentioning Paul Mooney. Yeah, uh, we were at the comedy. The Richard Pryor show was cast out of the comedy store. Mm-hmm. All of those uh, uh, ensemble players were stand-ups mm-hmm. from the comedies, brand new, all of us. And so Paul Mooney uh, was the one who said they can do it and recommended us for certain parts. Richard at this time was coming to the club, and uh, I had met him before he got the show because mm-hmm. he was doing working out his uh, Bicentennial Nigger mm-hmm. and uh, other albums there. So I got to meet him there. And then when the show got picked up, because he did a pilot, mm-hmm. six months later it gets picked up and put on at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and then you knew it was never going to fly. <laughs> but um, you, you knew up front it wasn't going to work. Not at 8 o'clock. At not, not that stuff. No, yeah, okay. The first thing up is okay. in the Cosby spot. It's not going to work. <laughs> and so um, the first sketch might have been the president sketch. Mm-hmm. And I got to play... Uh, Roberta Davies, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> I, it was like after we did that, then Richard said, "Well, this is our ensemble, and they just hired us per sketch yeah. uh, from that point on, and it only was four uh, shows." Yeah. Uh, but Richard was committed to doing what he wanted to do his way, the way he wanted to do it, That's and he right. did. And so you ended up with four great, sh- five, uh, counting the pilot, five great shows. And that's it. And that was it. <laughs> five, now, the, 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 the alternative or the flip side to prior doing it his way and only having five episodes is Cosby, who also did it his way. Right. But the show ends up being iconic. 
Right. And we can talk. There have been all kind of conversations about Cosby since then. We ain't going there. That ain't what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you were a part of that lineup at the moment that Cosby helped save NBC. Yes. When that show was turned down, not once, not twice, but by every network. I know this story well. Everybody turned down the Cosby show until NBC finally got it right. Brandon Tartikoff, God Correct. rest his soul. I was going to say, Brand, you been to Brandon. Brandon Tartikoff finally made that right decision, and the rest, as they say, is history. It changed television forever. What was it like just being in that rare air when the Cosby show was all that and then some? Well, it was, you know... It's hard to to explain. At the time, yeah. it was exciting and all that, but I'm brand new. I'm too stupid to be mm. scared. Yeah. Uh, even though I'm I'm apprehensive and mm. I, you know I got this. I don't feel like I belong in these in this with these luminaries. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Brandon Tartikoff also was from Chicago mm -hmm. and also knew who I was, even though I had never met him. And so it goes back to that is not who you know, is who knows you. Mm -hmm. And these people had known of my stand-up and know me from Chicago, and that's how I got yeah. in these shows. Brandon also did Night Court a couple of times, and uh, there were so many black people on NBC at the time. I said, uh, why did you change it to the Negro Broadcasting <laughs> Company? And he said, it's not. It's nothing but Cosby. <laughs> Close enough. Okay. We, 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 we shout out one Negro at least. Nothing, nothing but Cosby. Uh, no, it was that was those were heady days. Those were heady days when uh, NBC just ran everything, and Cosby was at the at the epicenter. Of that I digress on that for now. When we come forward I, again, I got so much more to talk to Marsha Warfield about. We haven't gotten to her stand up. Uh, we haven't gotten to uh, the Netflix is a joke uh, festival that's coming up. Um, she got a bunch of dates coming up as well. But, I, but when we come forward, though, I want to I want to just spend some more time talking about Paul Mooney specifically. We <laughs> talked about prior, uh, but I miss Paul Mooney. Yes, um, he was your longtime friend. Paul and I were cool and good friends, but I didn't know him the way you knew him. But mm -hmm. I just want to just do a just spend a few minutes in tribute to the late great Paul Mooney. Uh, and then we'll talk about a few other things. Uh, our guest in this hour is Marsha Warfield. She, uh, of course, made the role of Roz famous on Night Court. And Night Court is back, and so is Roz. And Marsha, again, busier than ever, but I'm glad we got a few minutes left in this dialogue with Marsha Warfield, who you're listening to right now, and I'm glad about it, on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. My guest is Marsha Warfield, and I'm delighted to have her live in studio right about now. Uh, legendary, iconic as a stand-up, and we all know her and love her as Roz on Night Court back in the day. And Night Court is back. I was just saying to her, y'all on the same, y'all on the same lot. Still Warner Brothers, yep. of course. Still Warner Brothers. Yeah. Still Burbank. Yeah. <laughs> what, what What does it feel like to reprise a role all these years later? It's it's kind of surreal, you yeah, know. It's yeah. like uh, it's like waking up. Uh, I've said it before. It's like waking up at your prom when you're seventy. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you never expected to be there again. And yeah. So I had now I had nothing to compare this to. Yeah. Other than you know back in the day, and that was uh, that was a half a lifetime ago. I. I was an entirely different person. So. Yeah. Well, at least you know what you're doing now. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I this have time a vague around. recollection. Yeah, you know what you're goes. doing this time around. Um, we mentioned Paul Mooney earlier, and I, nobody argues with the fact that Pryor was the GOAT. There, there's no argument, no argument there. 
But I've said this many times, and I say it with just nothing but love, deep love, Richard Pryor. Pryor doesn't pull off all that he does without Paul Mooney. It just it just doesn't happen the way it happens without Paul Mooney. So I wonder if you just might say a word about Paul Mooney. Well, a lot of us don't happen the way that we happen without Paul, Paul Mooney. Mooney yeah. Uh, yeah. Paul, like I said, he he helped cast the Richard Pryor show. But he often, uh, if there was a gig and you were right for it, he would recommend you. Uh, whenever I had the opportunity to hire him, you know, it went it went both ways. Symbiotic, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. When I met Paul was the first night I went to the comedy store uh, when I got there in 1976, March Mm -hmm. 5th, my birthday. Wow. And it might have been March 6th. Uh Anyway, I went to the comedy store. It was a uh, uh, Friday night, I believe, and uh, Spoon was at the door Mm -hmm. in his tennis shorts Mm -hmm. uh, and polo shirt with a sweater tied around his neck like, you know, doing an ad for uh, Newport (laughs) on the tennis court. And uh, he said, yeah, baby, come on in. I'll introduce you to all the comics. And he introduced me to all the comedians as they came in. Leno, Letterman, all of those guys were still working there. And uh, then for the second show, he said, I want you to meet uh, Paul, Paul. And he says, this is Marsha Warfield. She's a new comic from Chicago. And I said, hello. And he said, uh, they said, this is Paul Mooney. I said, hi. He said, Mr. Paul Mooney. Mm. And I said, well, okay, <laughs> sir. And I gave him a salute. Yeah. And then from that point on, we were friends. I, I, I uh, watched him work many times. Most of us, like most of the black comics at the comedy store at that time, uh, we just waited for Paul not to show up. <laughs> So we could go on, because once Paul went on, nobody yeah. else was going. That on. was it. He killed it. That was it. Huh? <laughs> that yeah. was it. Yeah. But Paul had a great. And I had to. T- I have to tell you, you did. You did that when you listened to what I said, mm-hmm. and then went from there. Paul listened better than anybody. Yeah. He his writing was a reflection of what you said. Mm-hmm. He he could write in your voice because you think you're just talking, and he's writing down what you're saying, and then put it in a script for him to give it back. And it always worked. It always worked. And it seemed like, how did he do that? He just, he listened so well. I say all the time that the more charitably you listen, the more generously you listen, the better you are as a host, but the better you are, I just think, in life across the board. Um, I said to somebody the other day in a speech, part of what's wrong with our society right now, there are many things, but one of my indictments is that there's too much monologue and not enough dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and dialogue only happens when people actually listen charitably uh, and generously to others. And so it works for me, and uh, it worked for Paul Mooney. And yeah, so I did. just wanted to give a little shout-out to And I was uh, lucky enough, I have to tell you, where mm-hmm. at the end, um, one of the last shows uh, he did, I was, I, I was on that show. Yeah. I had just got back into stand-up, and Dick Gregory passed away. Yeah. And Paul was supposed to work with Dick Gregory. And they asked me to take that spot. So I opened for Paul Yeah. Uh, then. And I got to work with him. I got to get a, a comedy award with him mm. and uh, and do a few shows with him at the end. At the so, end yeah. uh, how, how, did, how did comedy become your thing? And I ask that in part because 
there there's so many great artists across the board. I mean, well, I love Chicago for many reasons. It's my favorite American city. I live in L.A., and I shouldn't say that too loud, but I love Chicago, right? My friends know that. But one of the reasons I love it so much is there's so many great people from and in the city of Chicago, where we're heard right now, WVON. Shout out to VON in Chicago. But I love that city. But there's just so many great artists over the years who've come out of that city, black, white, and otherwise. Yeah. But I was thinking before you walked in the studio today about all the great comedians that have come out of the city. I mean, you can start with Bob Newhart. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them, right? Right. But, but Chicago is just a place just rich and full of artistic genius, but how did comedy become your lane? How did you know that was your thing coming out of Chicago? I had no clue. Yeah. Um, 1974, Tom Dreesen had just broken up with his partner, Tim Reed. I've told this story by mm-hmm. road a million times. He had just broken up with Tim. Tim and Tom was the sure. first. Sure, uh, know him well. Uh, uh, interracial comedy Comedy team. duo, yeah, yeah. And the, the twist was that Tom was the streetwise guy, mm-hmm. and uh, Tim was the conservative guy, and they worked for years. So, yeah. Tim moved to Los Angeles, and Tom was working out his stand up on his own. And the comedy clubs were just coming to be. The comedy store opened in 1973, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, the Improv had been open, but it did music and comedy. When they moved to Los Angeles in about 74, 73, something like that, they were doing all comedy. So the all comedy thing was brand new. Mm-hmm. Tom started a Monday night, which again was a new kind of thing, uh, at a club called the Pickle Barrel. And there was a write-up said you could go and then work out. I ended up going 2 o'clock in the morning, did my debut uh, they called the new comics virgin, so I walked on stage and said, my name is Marshall Warfield, and I'm a virgin, so please be kind. And uh, I've said it before, but it's the truth. I got a laugh, yeah. and a light shone down from above, and oh. the ancestors wrapped me in their arms and said, fool, this is what you do. Yeah. And from that point on, I never, ever considered another profession another job even 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 when you were on stage and didn't kill yes you never considered anything else never yeah and that was the second time i went to the uh pickle barrel yeah you know the first night was great i was great the two guys drunk guys at the table and the nine comedians that were left loved me yeah and so i had a great time (laughs) the second time i went up i bombed i ate a big one and i never Thought about not coming back. So yeah, yeah, I did. Um, as part of a charity thing, one time, I accepted a challenge to do to do a tight five, <laughs> and it worked. I worked with some of my friends who were you know yeah. comedy writers in this town, helped me get my material together, kind of like the president does every year for her, the right. White House Correspondents' Dinner. So I had my tight five together, and I you know I got up and it worked, and because it was me, they're like Tavis is gonna tell jokes, not Tavis, <laughs> not Mister Serious Tavis, smiling. So I went up, did my tight five. It worked. I loved it. And the the joy, what you just described, what it feels like to make people laugh that way. Yeah. To just, you know, it it, it, it did something to me. Right. But it almost killed me, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I would never do I survived my tight five, but I would never do it again. So when you say you 
couldn't think of doing anything else. Not ever again. I never considered anything else. That's funny, funny, funny stuff. All right. When we come forward, Marsha Warfield is on the road. Uh, I'm going to share with you some dates where you can uh, check her out. We'll talk about the Netflix as a Joke uh, Comedy Festival, at which she will be appearing, and a few other things. Just delighted to be in dialogue with Marsha Warfield right now on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Sometimes the best part of these conversations are the stuff that happens off air, and I have to stop the guests. Like, stop, stop, stop. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. We're going to discuss that on the air because I don't want you to reprise it. It ain't never, Sade said, never as good as the first time, right? Okay. So I don't want to try the second time. It doesn't come out quite the right way. So I stopped Marsha Warfield mid-sentence when these words came out of her mouth. I don't want her to have to do it a second time. We're talking, and Marsha just dropping bars <laughs> and says to me, Tavis, I believe that your dreams are your life's blueprint. Your dreams, your dreams are your blueprint. Now unpack that for me. Well, we think of our dreams as something that uh, is, is beyond our grasp, beyond our reach. But the reason why you have these dreams is because that's what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. And if you just follow your dreams, it won't be easy. You don't really know. You know, dreams can be confusing. But if you follow your dreams, chances are you'll be doing things that you've always done. There's a, there's a, in other words, there's a reason why it's already in your subconscious. It's always done. Yeah. I, as a five-year-old, I was taking joke books out of the library. Mm. I had no clue about being a stand-up comedian. I never, ever thought about being a stand-up comedian. But I am doing what I always did. And once you commit to, okay, this is my dream. This is my thought. This is what I want. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm being shown. And go with it. You might not make whatever it is you conceive of, but you'll be on a path that's for you. I'm going to hold on to that the rest of the day and for a few days to come and just noodle and marinate on that thing, (laughs) that your dreams are your blueprint. As I said, there's a reason why it's already in your subconscious. So your dreams, Marsha Warfield says, are in fact your blueprint. I I said to Marsha that one of my favorite movies is a movie called a film called Broadcast News. And in that film, William Hurt, a great actor, uh, in that film, there's a line uh, uttered by one of the characters. It simply says, what do you do when your life exceeds your dreams? What do you do when your life exceeds your dreams? I kind of responded when I heard that line, like I responded when I heard Marsha say, your dreams are your blueprint. <laughs> it just backed me up. And what I realized about that question, what do you do when your life exceeds your dreams, is that the answer is pretty simple. You dream bigger dreams. Right. When your life exceeds your dreams and you dream bigger dreams, there's a friend of mine once told me, if you tell somebody your dream and they don't laugh at you, then your dream ain't big enough. Okay. Your dream ought to be so big that you tell them, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then Negroes start laughing at you. Then you know you're on to something. Okay. If you tell folk your dream and they say, oh, then your dream ain't big enough. But also, in uh, I find in our community, yeah. when they say they ain't going to let you, mm-hmm. they're not stopping you. They're just basically saying, I love you and I'm afraid. I don't know how to help you. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do for you. So they ain't going to let you do that. But really, 
it's a challenge that, yes, they are. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. But they are not saying, like I said, they're not trying to stop you. They yeah. just don't know how to say I yeah. love you and I can't help yeah, you. Yeah, that's deep. That's deep. That's deep. You're preaching now. The, the right Reverend Dr. Martha Warfield <laughs> is, right. is, is preaching. And now I'm laughing because we all, we're all the way back to Hollywood Shuffle. That was his grandmama, baby. There's always oh, work at the post office. Of course. She, she loved him, but she was afraid to tell him, these white folk ain't, ain't going to let, let you do this in Hollywood. And they ain't going to let you. <laughs> you got to make them let you. There you go. Our remaining moments with Marsha Warfield when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley hanging out with Marsha Warfield. And I've enjoyed this hour uh, having Marsha in studio. Um, legendary, iconic comedian and still doing it. I was just telling her it must feel good to have another circle around the sun. You're yes. just going around again. Big 7-0 come March 5th. Look I'm going to. Look at you. I'm growing old bodaciously. <laughs> I like it. Growing old bodaciously. Uh, and uh, she's back. Uh, now that she ever went anywhere. Actually, well, actually, she did go yeah, somewhere. Yeah. You did retire for a little bit. For a little, for a good little For while. a good little bit. Yes. Uh, so let me just say this. After an overlong period, <laughs> overlong period of retirement, she is back and growing old bodaciously, but still doing her thing. Uh, back for revenge is Marsha Warfield, uh, tackling topics like politics and being black and my favorite, her, her love affair with pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll let I'll let her do the stand up. That I, that ain't my job. Uh, you can catch her on Night Court. She's back playing Roz again after all these years. So Night Court is back, and here's some dates: um, March 15th and 16th. She's in New Hampshire with Martha Wash and Linda Clifford. I love and, that. Uh, uh, Norma Jean Wright. Yeah. It is a wonder. It's so the first ladies of disco. Such an honor to be on yeah. that show. It's so much fun. Yeah, that's 15 and 16 of March. Uh, uh, in uh, New Hampshire, uh, May sixth. She's here in L.A. at yes. the Masonic Lodge of Hollywood. Yes, that's uh, that's part of the Netflix as a joke festival. It's also the Book of Marsha. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> the Book of Marsha. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so Netflix has this festival here in L.A. and they basically take over all kinds of different venues. Right. So uh, Marsha is on May sixth. The Book of Marsha, uh, May sixth, as part of the Netflix as a joke festival. That's uh, at the at the Masonic Lodge, and then August five through eight. You're going to be Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's yeah, a couple the, more things happening. I know there is. I'm just, just I'm just trying to throw a few of them out there, just to but, just to prove to people that as you approach seven zero, you <laughs> you ain't slowing down. But I got to say, yeah. while I'm sitting here in this beautiful uh, studio yeah. of yours, thank you so much for having me here, and I just want to say how this Black History Month. Yes, it is. How proud I am, yeah. and to have seen. So things from where I started to where they are now. Mm. And I just wish that my other black people, you know, we have this thing now where everybody's in competition and Mm. everybody is dissing everybody. But if y'all could just see how Mm. beautiful you are to me, see yourselves the way I see you. We watched videos last night of of just regular R&B videos. Talent, the the artistry, the the craft that went into all of that. I sat there grinning like a like a footlight, like they're like they're my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much to love and to the. We need community. We have community. I talk about Paul. Mm-hmm. Talk about Richard. Talk about Spoon. Talk mm-hmm. about all of the people whose shoulders 
I stand on and who the Della Reese's oh, that yeah. came before us. When I, I think of all of that and how expansive and how wide open their embrace has been of me yeah. and of each other, I get a little disheartened that we don't see yeah. just how, not only how far we've come, just how vibrant we are. And, and beautiful we are. No. It's not about renaissances. It's not about... Oh, it's always been, you've always been so much more magnificent than we've allowed ourselves to be seen or that they've allowed us to see ourselves. I can't close no better than that. Uh, we, are, we, we are some bad people. Yes. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. I say all the time during this month, uh, quoting Du Bois, the great black intellectual, would America have been America without her Negro people? No. And the answer is no. Of course not. You take black folk out of the American experiment, it just falls flat. We are some bad people. Yes. And I'll close it right there. Marsha Wilford, you a bad sister. Thank you. And I thank you for this time. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Back here tomorrow, Lord willing, to do it all over again. Until then, thanks for tuning in to Tavis Smiley. And as always, keep the faith.